on this world stage, terrorism and its deadly effects are seen. Just a couple of weeks ago in Paris, France, we saw the devastating work of those who, for a cause, would slaughter innocent people. The terrorists had selfish motives for sure. They did not care really about the politics of their victims. They did not care about the families of those they killed. They did not even care about their own families being ostracized and forced to wear the scarlet letter of scorn, perhaps for the rest of their lives. All they cared about was their cause. Some would mistakenly call that commitment. I call it the mindset of a lost person who needed desperately to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as if we thought America was immune from these attacks, just this past week, a man and a woman slaughtered 14 people and injured many more in the state of California. All over our media, the talking heads ask the question, why? Why did this happen? <clears throat> why did one seemingly normal guy with a seemingly normal wife kill 14 innocent people <clears throat> it is not the selfishness of these horrendous crimes that really bugs us I think on the contrary due <clears throat> to the unfortunate frequency of this type of violence we are almost immune to the fact that here exists those who will kill and perhaps die for a cause what really, thank you, sir, what really sticks in our craw is the one thing we want to know, and that is why. What makes people so evil? And it seems that we get lost in a false narrative that humanity is basically good. So these types of things tend to really surprise us. I mean, you don't have to admit it today, but maybe some of us in here were really kind of shocked that people would just walk into a place and shoot and kill 14 people for a cause. Now, most of the reporting I saw and heard talked about people being radicalized and somehow made into murderers. And this is the story that drives the very human desire to believe that somehow, some way, we are basically good. It is the same story that drives people to say that they do not need God or Christ because deep down they know they are a good person. And guess what? They don't think good people go to hell. It is this story of man being basically good. That is the very story that propels men and women everywhere to reject 
the gospel. It is a story that leaves us in awe when human beings do things like kill innocent children born and unborn. The we are basically good narrative leaves us shaking our heads and speechless when we consider how in a city like Chicago in this year, 2015 alone, we can have 416 murders by shooting and nearly 2,400 people shot and wounded. And we still have three weeks to go in the rest of this year. It is this story that man is basically good. That is the wrong story. It is a story that is based on a false premise. And it is a story that Jesus came to earth to refute. The truth is, and I know you look good, but the truth is, we are not basically good. In fact, because of sin, humanity after Adam and Eve became sinners by nature, complete with the capacity to do all of those horrible aforementioned things and even more. There is something even more that we must consider when we commit, when we come to admit just how wrong this we are basically good narrative really is we must admit that if this narrative is wrong then all of the solutions based on this narrative are wrong as well for example how many times have we heard that things will get better if we just fix the government in this election season all candidates are telling you if you vote for me i'll fix everything and all will be well in the land of Oz. How many times have we heard that we just need to fix society? We need to fix the family. I came to tell you today that if the story is wrong, then these areas that we claim we need to fix are simply symptoms of a much deeper problem. We are wrong. Broken to our core. Because of sin. The true story. The true story. Is the one found. In the word of God. And it is told in four stages. Creation. The fall. Redemption. Rescue. And restoration. Oh praise God for that. Amen. Amen. It is this story, the true story, that shall occupy our time this month. And I want to share this with you. Some time ago, a gentleman by the name of Jerry McCorkle took this ancient outline of creation, fall, redemption, rescue, and restoration, and he made it into a gospel track. He called it the story, and it has been a very effective outreach tool. A year ago, they turned this track into a video track. This short film is very well done and they have graciously graciously supplied it to us and we're going to use this video through December as a supplement to telling the story, the big story it is. Our Christmas Eve services will revolve 
around this. And we're going to give a copy of the story track to everyone as they leave on Christmas Eve. Our hope is that this month and Christmas Eve we can tell the big story and celebrate how Jesus and Christmas are the key to it all. So let's begin with the first chapter in this <clears throat> big story, its creation. I want to play a short video for you now to watch. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. We start with creation. And that is how the Gospel of John starts. The Gospel of John has few, if any, of the details that Matthew and Luke include about Mary and Joseph and angels and shepherds. John is not really writing a chronology or a timeline, but writing more of a Christology or a theology of Jesus. He begins his gospel before Christmas, before the birth of Christ and before the Old Testament. And he even begins his gospel before creation. John tells us the big story starting at the beginning. And he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You ought to just get excited right there. Just In verse 9, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But here's what I like. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right. That's a legal designation. He gave the right to become 
children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Before he was given the name Jesus, Jesus was the second member of the Trinity, the son. John here applies to Jesus a fairly common philosophical title of the day. He calls him the word. What does that mean? Now think about words. Words are how we express ourselves. We speak words. We write words. Those words are connected to our thoughts in our brain and in our heart. The Apostle John takes that connection between personhood and the words and applies it to Jesus. He gives him the title The word, the word, the self-expression of God. Before he was even named Jesus by his mother and earthly father, Joseph, before he existed here on earth, he was with the father. Before everything was made, there was God and this unique person was both with God and was himself God. Now, let us look at creation a little more closely as described by the Apostle John. First thing I want you to get here is that everything not God, he created. Everything not God, he created. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the mediating and creating person and power behind everything that is not God. Prior to creation, there was no matter, no time, no being or persons, no anything but the Godhead. There was no building materials. Nothing existed but God. And out of the overflow of divine love within the Trinity flowed this thing we call creation. That is the nature of love. Love creates things. When you are dating someone, love creates notes, poems, heart shapes drawn in the sand. <laughs> Some of you are going to come on back this way now. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. In marriage, love creates commitment and possibly children. It is the nature of love, one writer says, to create. The universe is the ultimate evidence of God's enduring love. His love created. In Colossians 1 and 16, we find these words. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created by him. 
everything that is not God was created by him. Even the designer clothes you wear are created by him. Even the purse you carry with the name that's attached to it was created by him. The car you drive, all the materials that went to make that vehicle were created by him. So think about that. The second thing about creation is how do we explain creation how did it happen you know while scientists will engage us in theories like the big bang the bible clearly provides special revelation as to how creation happened it was not an accident you, you didn't get here because your mama loved your daddy. That's what I'm trying to say. Or your daddy loved your mama or they loved each other. That's not how. It was not an accident. It's all God's design plan. And the true story starts in Genesis 1 and 1 when it says these words. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth this is it nothing says it better or more correctly than this God created the heavens and the earth look no further God did all of the creative work he needed no help from us now this is one of the most story defining statements that can be made Notice in that statement, in the beginning, God created. There is a God. This is not a closed universe. Preexistent to creation, God was. When, when, when Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am that I am. In other words, you really don't have language that can properly explain me, but I'm going to try to give you something that will help you understand that I've just always been here. And I always will be. There is no beginning for me. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. When everything is gone, I'll still be here. No definition of his character at this point other than that there is one God. What does this one God do? He creates everything among other world religions. This one verse in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This one verse separates Christianity from pantheistic religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. They mistake creation as being God. So they look at something that's created and make a God out of that. That is not who God is. God is God all by himself. He is not a created being. Created things are not God or gods. Genesis 1.1 also contradicts 
the narratives of secular humanism and materialism which say there is nothing but the material world because in the beginning there was nothing but God existed. The biblical creation narrative continues and lays out the order of created things through a series of six days. On the sixth day, however, God does something very special. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. You think the author is trying to tell us something here? The principle of repetition. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This text speaks of humanity's unique identity and purpose. We are made in the image of God. Now let that marinate in you for just a minute. We are made in the image of God. This means many things, but for the sake of the story, this means that we are made by God, like God, and for God we are made of the substance of the world but with the personhood that raises our dignity and worth above the animals and the oceans and the galaxies we are physical and spiritual we are temporal but yet we are made for eternity we exist in time but God's pleasure is that we would exist with him for eternity we have souls engineered to know our creator and to worship him apostle Paul says this in Ephesians he says we are saved to the praise of his glory God created us for his own glory for his own pleasure you are made to please God now that's gonna that's gonna throw somebody off today because we've been living our lives to please ourselves I mean, who doesn't want to please themselves, right? Who doesn't want to have everything that you want and you need and be self-aware self, uh, uh, of everything and have all the inducements of, of pleasure? Of course, our flesh desires that, but you were not created to please yourself. You are created for the express purpose of pleasing God. Now, now think about that. How many God-pleasing things did you do this morning besides showing up here? 
And let me tell you, if you showed up here and you didn't show up here like the Bible says, enter enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise, you might not have pleased him by even coming here today. I'm just saying. (laughs) Look at somebody and tell tell that preacher to leave me alone. I just, he needs to leave me alone. I just, I came to church. Y'all be happy. (laughs) But Genesis 1.28 gives our purpose on earth, we are to subdue the earth and exercise dominion in it. Theologians call this the cultural mandate. This is authorization from God to discover and invent uses in creation. We subdue the earth by utilizing its incredible God-made power and complexity and bringing order to the universe. That was God's mandate for humanity. We are made, we are made for his glory and God provided the tools for us to bring order in this world. That's our mandate. We are also to have dominion here on earth. We are responsible for the health and the vibrancy of creation we are stewards of God's garden and let me just throw this in for free see let me tell you how sin messed this thing up Paul puts it like this in Romans uh he says he says in chapter 8 he says all of creation groans for the waiting of the sons of God to be revealed in other words because of sin creation itself moans waiting for God the revelation of the sons of God. So we're to have dominion. We're to subdue the earth and not exploit it. Do you see the balance here? We are unique in all of creation as image bearers and are given dominion on earth. But this is balanced by our responsibility to our creator and our calling to be good stewards over the earth. Here's another element to the real, to the true story. Creation is good. Many would have you to think that God created, that the created world is bad, a horrible example of God's mistake. But this is not true. Nine times in Genesis 1, God pronounced his creative work as good. And he looked and saw that it was good. And God said, it is good. So let us not think for a moment that God's work is somehow bad or that God does not take delight in his creation. Now, many of you know I, I'm a kind of a movie buff. Have anybody ever seen that movie, Evan Almighty? Throw your hand up real fast. if you Okay. So listen, think about this now. Yeah, there's a scene. In that movie, and the actor who's portraying God, Morgan Freeman, as if anybody could ever be God, but, but uh, that's the audacity of Hollywood. We're going to get somebody to play God, and who better than Morgan Freeman, apparently. <laughs> but but uh, um, the actor portraying God suggests that, as and he's speaking as God, and he, he says, I made a range of hills so the sunset would be beautiful. 
And as he's saying it, he's also admiring the sunset. And I would like to believe that this is what God does. He admires his creation and takes joy in the majesty of the mountains and the careful plains of the, of the valleys. God takes joy in his creation. Can't you see God looking at the Rocky Mountains and, and in all their majestic glory and, and saying to himself, I remember when I made that. Can, I, I went last, this year for the first time in my life to the Grand Canyon and I stood there in awe and I said, God, you just took your fingernail and just dipped a hole out and look what came out of that. This is the most beautiful thing that I've seen on earth. Besides my wife, of course. <laughs> Put one on the ledger for me right there. Just <laughs> but I said, God, look at what you've done with just your creative ability. You've made something so incredibly beautiful. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I mean, the way the colors and the rocks and everything looks so beautiful. I can imagine God just saying, yeah, I remember when I made that too. Then we look at things like Mount Rushmore where the carvings of the presidents were on the, on the mountain. And I can imagine God smiling and saying, you think you did something, don't you? Go over and take a look at Mount Everest. 28,000 plus feet in the air, a majestic mountain standing higher than any peak on earth. You think you made something, don't you? Look at the waterfalls in Africa, how beautiful they are as they come over the rocks and fall to the ground in such majestic. You think you did something, don't you? I can see God smiling and said, you have, you're no match. You're no match for my creative power. God takes joy. In his creation. Amen. Give him praise for that. So what does this have to do with Christmas? You might ask. What, what does this got to do with Christmas? Let me tell you. Only an essentially good creation would allow for the incarnation of the Son of God. So here, here's another thing. Creation and Christmas. Let's get back to John 1 and 14. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh. Let that just marinate in your heart for a minute. The word became flesh. This is the same word that was with God and was God in verse 1. The same word that created everything in verse 3. The same word that created everything that is. This divine, eternal, spiritual being became in Mary's womb what he had never been before. He became material, physical, flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us the apostle paul describes it like this in colossians 2 and 9 he says in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in other words all of what makes god god was put in a human wrapper 
to our own limited human mind, this is a tough pill to swallow. How could the creator of something become that which he or she created? How could Shakespeare become Romeo? How could Van Gogh become the Mona Lisa? How could Kareem become the Skyhook? I'm just saying. <laughs> I do think Kareem created the Skyhook. So how could God become flesh? How could the creator become what he created. This is why the angelic host sang on that day when Christ was born. And why we've been singing in wonder about it ever since. Only God could do this. It is a mystery. The union of spiritual God with physical creation in a baby. What I want you to see is that only by a creation being inherently good could the Son of God be unified to the created order. If being physical was inherently bad or sin or evil, then Jesus could never have become flesh and dwelt among us. When God made man, he said, it's good. There are three implications, and we'll be done here, for creation. The first one is, a good creation allows for the divine incarnation. When Jesus made the created order, he already knew that someday he himself would be physical. The hands he gave to Adam were like the hands he would have. The mind and appetite of Adam would one day be like the mind and appetite of the incarnate God. Jesus was not only making us a home, but he was making himself a home as well. Someday a young woman virgin named Mary would hear the dramatic news from the angel in Nazareth. And Luke 1, 28 and 33 explains it. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And she asked this question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Her answer was the power of God would create a child without a man that would be simultaneously fully man and fully God. That is the mystery. That is why we worship Second thing about creation, a beautiful creation connects with humanity's yearnings. We're going to see next week that sin has diminished the glory of creation. It is in bondage to decay, yet it still retains enough of its former glory to continue to speak truth to us. It continues to tell us. Creation continues to tell us the real story. Psalms 19, 1 through 3 says, The heavens declare 
the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Have you ever looked outside at night in a cloudless night and seen the moon and the stars and looked and said, I feel very small and compared to all of this. Look at what God has done. Billions and billions of stars exist in the universe and all God had to do is say, let there be and there was. Psalmist goes on to say, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Verse 3, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard the majesty of our creator. If you think about the yearnings of the human heart, don't they align with what creation is really saying? Most of us want someone to love us. We desire food and water and shelter. We want protection and provision. We long for someone to care for us. What do we find in God's creation? We find water to meet our needs, oxygen is everywhere sun is there to warm us dirt is on the ground that produces our food climate perfectly balanced for our body's capacity colors and splendor that delight our eyes human relationships are there of love the good that remains in creation fits perfectly with the desires that we find resident in our own hearts that my brothers and sisters is not a coincidence. God is telling through creation the story that he loves us, that he cares. Every breath you draw is because God cares enough to provide oxygen for us to breathe. But creation can only say so much. The gospel fills it in. And we're getting ahead in this story. But Adam and Eve, and you know the story, how they sin and evil enters the human heart and twists this really good creation. Death is the constant human experience. From the moment that we are born, we begin to die. The gospel is that Jesus became a man, lived as a man, died for men's sins, was resurrected, and lives forever at the right hand of God as Savior and Lord of all who believe in him. God sends a rescue to his creation. But that's a coming chapter. We'll get to that. The last thing that creation tells us is that creation's goodness is the basis for resurrection and a new creation. Why was Jesus resurrected in a human body? Why will God create a new heaven and a new earth? And it's for this reason, because this physical world is just not a passing fancy of God's. He has determined that a material world will exist forever and ever the reason our bodies are resurrected is that God is determined to save them too and for us to be physical living physical bodies in a physical world forever we see the end of the story is God's remaking 
and redeeming all that sin has destroyed. God redeems his people. He resurrects their bodies. He redeems the whole universe and he restores forever his relationship with humanity by making the new heaven and earth also into his home. The Apostle John sums it up in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 through 5. We read these words and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now think for a minute about how messed up we really are. Think for a minute about your own sin. Think for just a moment, why would God want to have anything to do with us. But here, the apostle says that the dwelling place of God, where God wants to live, is with us. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You ought to get excited right there. You ought to get excited when you think about the fact that the eternal God will always be with us who believe. Here's the part I like. He will wipe away every tear. Every tear produced by every heartache, every tear produced by every painful situation, every tear produced by every sickness, every disease, every hurt, every tear produced by accidents and all of those calamities, every tear, he will wipe away. And death, hallelujah, will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And verse 5 says, And he who was seated on the throne, hallelujah, He who was seated on the throne. Here's what he said. Behold, I am making all things new. God is still creating. God is still loving enough to make everything new. Why would you not want to be a part of this new earth and this new heaven? And if you're here today and you have not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, This God is still loving you, and he's still loving you enough to want you to be in his family. He loves you enough to say that when the time on earth comes to an end, when your time is done here, if you would believe the gospel, it would be like walking through a door. 
from one level of existence to eternal life. From the land of the dying, which is where we are now, to the land of the living, which is where God is. So if you're here today and you have not believed the gospel, I challenge you. I challenge you to look into the depths of your heart and ask yourself, why have I, have I not believed this true story? Why have I not believed that God loves me enough to have sent his son here, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, but not just to do that, but to die for our sins on an old rugged cross. Why have I not believed that? Why have I bought into this false narrative that somehow God doesn't care about me? When Jesus died on the cross, 